Well, hey, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. Uh, go ahead and just get it out of the way. I'm a little under the weather. Allergies is, um, the, you know, I, I, you get some inheritances from your parents, uh, some traits, and one of them I got from my father was uh, crippling allergies in the springtime. So, uh, pardon my voice and pardon my sniffles. Uh, hopefully, that won't be too much of a distraction. If you have uh, your Bibles, go ahead and find with me Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we're uh, getting back to our reg- regularly scheduled program after a little detour on Easter Sunday. And as you're finding Matthew 26, let's just kind of set the stage together. We are zooming into the last moments, the last couple of days of Jesus's life on earth. His earthly ministry is coming to an end, culminating in the cross, the crucifixion of Christ. We're going to see this back and forth motion as we read through Matthew 26 of what Jesus is doing, the things that he's saying, the kind of last words and last actions that he's giving. And then uh, we'll see what other people are doing around Jesus, plotting and preparing for his arrest and his betrayal and ultimately his death. Even Peter and the rest of the apostles will be implicated as those who will deny Jesus. But the goal for this morning is that, number one, we would see Jesus for who he is, but number two, we would recognize that even in the midst of their great failure, their great falling short, there is also great hope. And that's true for you and me as well, by God's grace. So we're quickly moving to the cross, but before that, there's a couple of pieces that have to be moved into place. So I hope you notice as we run through these passages that none of this is by accident. I mean, we think about our own lives and we, we normally don't give a lot of value to the seemingly random events in our life. And as you read the, the story of Jesus, as you read the story of scripture, you might think that some of the things in those pages are accidental. They are random. They're, they're not important. And uh, the reality is the spirit of God inspires this word for a purpose, right? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable. So everything in the Word is profitable for us. So uh, when we read the story of Jesus, we need to recognize that none of this is by accident. None of this is random. All of this is fulfilling a purpose. That's true for the story of Jesus. And that's true for your story as well. So let's dive in together into our text this morning. Uh, You see on the screen, plot, preparation, Passover, and prophecy. I couldn't help. Uh, the alliteration, it just kind of fell in my lap. So uh, we're going to look at four different scenes this morning pretty quickly and then hopefully give some time to discuss it at the end. Let's read in Matthew 26, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Let's pause and pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we are thankful and grateful and reminded once again of your great kindness and mercy that we get to gather on this Lord's day with the brothers and sisters of our family of faith open up the word, and by the power of your spirit, see Christ. Lord, I pray that this morning you would help me to teach with clarity and authority that I would present Jesus as 
incomparably wonderful, as glorious, as the Savior of the world, the Redeemer for sinners, the crucified King, the suffering servant. Lord, there's so much we could say, so much you have revealed, but I pray that you would give me the focus to teach your word rightly and wisely, that you would, by the power of your spirit, illuminate the minds and hearts of these students and leaders to hear and see you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first we see in Matthew 26, this plot against Jesus, right? Uh, They are very intentional that they want Jesus to die. Now they've wanted Jesus to die. And by they, I mean the religious leaders of Israel. They've wanted Jesus to die for a while, right? They have been repeatedly shamed and shown up and uh, uh, made almost made fun of and insulted and corrected by Jesus <coughs> for a while now. And their control, their power, their influence is increasingly waning as the the influence and importance of Jesus in Jerusalem is increasing. But before their plot, we see Jesus's own announcement, right? Look there in verse one, Jesus had finished saying all these things, that, that Olivet Discourse that we've gone through for the last couple of weeks, where all of these uh, teachings about the coming judgment, the end of days, after Jesus says those things, he tells his disciples, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will delivered, be delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus is connecting his own impending death with the story of the Exodus. That's where we get the Passover meal from. Remember, it's the the meal that Israelites ate where they sacrificed a lamb. They ate that together with bitter herbs. They put shoes on their feet and they took the blood from that lamb and they painted it on the lintels and the doorposts of their houses because that night the angel of death would come to kill the firstborn son of every household. And so this Passover meal is this representation, it's this sign, it's this image that through the substitute's death, we survive. Through blood being shed by another, I get to live. And Jesus is saying, Passover's coming and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. So Matthew wants us to notice as we go through the end of the, uh, his gospel We need to have the Exodus and the Passover in mind because Jesus is alerting us to that. It's here that we see the chief priests and the elders, the leaders of the Jews, gathering together to plot the death of Jesus. Now, Caiaphas, the high priest, he's kind of the the chief among equals. He hosts the meeting in his palace. Notice the premeditation here. This isn't a off-the-cuff meeting. This isn't a kind of a providential encounter. This is a, hey, tonight we're meeting to discuss Jesus. Wink, wink. There is intentionality here. There's a scheme. It's deliberate. They knew what they wanted to do, and they knew they needed a plan to do it. So what did they decide? These leaders and these chief priests and these elders, these models of righteousness in Jerusalem, the ones to whom the people of Israel would look as a model for holiness, they decided that they would move by stealth, that they would be deceiving, that they wouldn't act out in the open, but in the shadows. And why? Why do they decide to do that? Well, they tell us there in verse 5, not out in the open, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar. 
These chief, this chief priest and the chief priests around him and the elders, they recognized that Jesus had a following, that the crowds loved Jesus, that the crowds were drawn to Jesus. They were, they were impressed by him. They were uh, captivated by his teaching and his miracles and his works and his words. Here's the point. The Jewish leadership had been shamed, defeated, rebuked, and more by Jesus in front of those same crowds. So they now recognize, well, we can't do anything in front of the crowds or else they won't be on our side. So they embody a kind of vengeance in the dark in order to have their own way. Matthew's cluing us in. Jesus knows his time is short and the Jewish leaders have laid their plans. So now we read to see it unfold. Let's keep going in verse six. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's just stop there. We see not just the plot against Jesus, his impending death, but number two, we see the the preparation for Jesus. There's this anointing that takes place. This woman in Bethany The scriptures in other gospels tell us is Mary, the the sister of Lazarus. They had a home in Bethany. And it's this Mary that comes to Jesus at this meal, the house of Simon the leper. She takes this alabaster flask full of luxurious, expensive ointment and oil, and she pours it over Jesus's head. She anoints him with this oil. We ought not to miss the imagery here. He's being prepared for burial, Jesus says, which means death. But we also need to realize that the word Messiah literally means the anointed one. And here we have this woman, Mary, anointing Jesus right before one of his most important acts and one of, if not the most important act in human history, See, we recognize Jesus as the Messiah, not because he was a good teacher. We recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, not because he was the son of David, although those things are true. No, ultimately, we recognize that Jesus is Messiah, that in light of all of those things that seem to exalt him, how he will actually be lifted up is to die. And so the anointing of Jesus, his his preparation for burial is what clues you and I in to see Jesus as the Messiah that he came to be. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one, but that can only be understood in light of the cross. It can only be understood when we realize that Jesus, the son of David, is also the suffering servant. The one who will rule on a throne forever and ever is also pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The one who will rule with an iron scepter and conquer and rule over all the nations, it's by his wounds that we are healed. The disciples missed it. 
I mean, they, they watched this unfold and they were indignant. They were angry. They were upset. They thought, what a waste. This flask, this jar, this oil, as far as we can tell from other gospels, it was worth about a year's wages, like a year's salary. This is how much this ointment was worth. And this woman seemingly just pours it out lavishly, generously, without any kind of abandon, without any kind of uh, recognition of what she's giving up. They were upset. This could be sold for the poor, they said. The money could be given to those in need. But Jesus quickly rebukes them and defends Mary. Jesus was on the side of the one who did a beautiful thing to him, giving generously and extravagantly to honor and bless Jesus. And Jesus continues by honoring Mary. He says, this woman, this act, this event will be remembered when the gospel is proclaimed. And here we are. We're reading through the gospel of Matthew and we we come to grips with the fact that the disciples, the ones who've been with Jesus for so long, missed it. But Mary, she gets it. She understands what's going on. We might think about our own lives then and the treasures that we have. How can we use them to honor Jesus? Now, when you ask yourself this question, you need to be prepared to realize that The world will look at the calculus of a believer and decide that it is foolish, that it is wasteful. Why give your money to the church? Why give your time to serving others? Why give all of your effort to sharing the gospel? Why give your time to those who need it more than you? Why do these beautiful things? Because like Mary, we love Jesus. And we know that everything given for his sake is well worth it. That's why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that our whole lives are given, our bodies are given as a living sacrifice. In other words, everything that we have, we give back to Jesus and say, Jesus, it's yours. I was crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ is the one who lives in me. So all that I have is really his. My time, my Energy, my talents, my gifts, my opportunities, my circumstances, all of it is his. So will I be indignant when I see others giving of themselves for the sake of Christ? Or will I join them and say, what they're doing is a beautiful thing, and I want to honor him as well. Matthew sets up an incredible contrast. We see this reckless abandon to to lavish generosity in honoring Jesus. And then we look at verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. 30 pieces of silver. That's the most that Jesus was worth to Judas. And Judas was one of the 12. Like Matthew wants you to know, if there's anybody close to Jesus, it's Judas. It's one of the 12. And they've been with him nonstop for three years. So familiar with his teachings. So familiar with his miracles personal witness to his love for all. 
And yet we find Judas here in the same mode as the Jewish leaders earlier, conniving, plotting, and scheming to use Jesus for his own gain. What is Jesus worth to you? I mean, the, the, the worth, the value of something is correlated to the amount that we're willing to give for it, right? So um, there's this old movie, I think you've probably seen it before, The Sandlot, right? And, and the kid, he doesn't understand. I, I, my dad has this, has this ball, and we're going to play baseball. I'm just going to go grab this baseball from my from my stepdad, and we're going to go play with it, and oh man, I lost it, dang, I lost that ball. You know, it's just a baseball. <laughs> Except, uh, you know, it had this lady's name on it, uh, some lady named Ruth, right? And they're like, Babe Ruth, right? One of the most famous baseball players of all time. Like, he signed that baseball, and we're out here just playing, like, Sandlot baseball with a Babe Ruth baseball, and we just cracked it over the fence. Like, what are you thinking, right? Like, he did not see the value that the other people were willing to ascribe to it. Yeah, <laughs> right? Like, that's what, that's what we say to Judas, right? Like, he's a square, right? No, but the same is true between the, the woman at Bethany and Judas, like, what are, you, what are you willing to give to Jesus? Now, your giving to Jesus doesn't change his value, right? He's infinitely holy. But the point is, is that the things that we value the most, the things that we put in the, the focus of our minds are those things that we're going to orient our whole life around. Right? If I don't value eating vegetables then I'm probably not going to eat a lot of vegetables. But if I value health, if I value taking care of my body, if I value these certain things, then these other actions will be commensurate. They'll come alongside it. And if I value Christ, if I see him as supremely worthy, as an incalculable treasure, well, then giving this expensive ointment is nothing. But if I don't value him, if I don't treasure him in my heart, then betraying him doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And hey, you're going to give me 30 pieces of silver? Sweet. What is Jesus worth to you? Because he's worthy whether or not you value him. But if we consider Jesus the ultimate treasure, the one of infinite worth, and we orient our lives around him, then the way that we live our life will be according to reality. It will be as it was intended, as it was created to be. All right, we have to keep going. Look at verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I'll keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. 
When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you've said so. Well, we move to our third scene and we see the third P this morning, and that's the Passover. And the Passover with Jesus becomes transformed into communion. It becomes something greater than it originally was. But before we get to the institution of the supper, we have to deal with the elephant in the room. And that is one of you, Jesus says, will betray me. All of this is no surprise to Jesus because in some vital words in verse 18, he tells the disciples to tell a certain man that the teacher says, my time has come. Right? You go read the other gospels and sometimes you'll see Jesus say things like, my hour is not yet here. My time has not yet come. And now he says, no, it's here. What the son of God took on flesh to accomplish was about to be on full display. The time had come. So Jesus alerts the disciples that betrayal is going to happen. And this obviously fills the disciples with sorrow, right? Like if, if the person that you loved and followed tells you like, hey, one of you is going to really let me down. Like you're going to betray me. I mean, think about how that might have felt. And so over and over, full of sorrow, they question Jesus. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord, Lord? Am I going to be the one who betrays you? I don't want to betray you. Is it, is it me? These disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. And now they would betray him? I mean, in their minds, it doesn't compute. It's unthinkable that they would betray their Lord. Jesus then pronounces a woe. It'd be better for that man if he hadn't even been born. The judgment that's going to come is greater than not even existing. And then Judas asks if he would be the one. Now, Jesus' answer to Judas is really hard to understand because we read it in our translations. It says, you have said so, or so you say, or something like that. But there's an idiom here. Okay, understand what an idiom is. It's, it's language that we use in our culture and context that doesn't literally mean what we're saying, but we all kind of know what it means, right? So let me give you an example. Uh, if, it's a, if it's storming and it's raining really, really hard, you might say, man, it's raining cats and dogs out there. Yeah, like that's funny because if you looked outside, it was just like animals, like this is a weird day. Like this is not a normal day. But everyone in the room knows when you say it's raining cats and dogs, you know, like, oh, it just means it's raining really, really hard, right? It doesn't literally mean what we're saying, but we all in the room get it. And in the same way, Jesus's answer, you have said so, or so you say, is an idiom in that, in that culture to be a non-answer. Like he's not affirming that, Jesus, that Judas is going to betray him. Now, and even look back, he said, the one who dipped his hand with me in the dish is the one who's going to betray me. You got to realize they're at a table. They're all passing stuff around. So Jesus is not answering the question. Now we can speculate as to why. Maybe it would be because the disciples would have restrained Judas. 
They would have kept him if they knew that he was going to be the one to betray him. They wouldn't have let him leave their sight. For whatever reason, the text doesn't tell us. Everyone is on edge. and No one knows. But Matthew gives us a hint. To the disciples in verse 22, Jesus is Lord. For Judas, in verse 25, he is a rabbi. To the 11, Jesus is kurios. He is the Lord. He is the one who has all authority over their life. To Judas, he's a teacher. He's a religious leader. Matthew doesn't want us to miss it. But then, in the midst of all this sorrow, in the midst of all this tension, Jesus transforms the meal they're about to eat. Let's look at verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This last supper, supper, this Passover meal, has now been transformed into the Lord's Supper, into communion. A broken body and poured out blood point us directly to the cross of Christ where sinners like you and me find the justice of God towards sin and the love of God towards sinners meeting in incomparable glory. There's so much to say here about the Lord's Supper, but for now, just know that when we take the Lord's Supper as the church, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again, we are receiving nourishment from God. It's his Supper. I mean, think about the context of the room. They are distraught. One of you is going to betray me. Take and eat. This is my body. Like one of you is going to fail miserably. Drink this. It's my blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins. So, so here's the point. When you and I go to take the Lord's Supper, let's just be honest with ourselves. We didn't nail it that week. Like none of us are coming to the supper going, man, I deserve this. No, like if we're honest with ourselves and we actually take seriously that time of uh, reflection that we usually take before we take the supper, we will become very aware that we are weak, that we are frail, that we are needy, that we have betrayed Jesus, that we have failed him throughout the week over and over because this old self still wars against us with a kind of power that left to ourselves, we will never be able to overcome. And so we come wounded and broken to the table around our brothers and sisters in the faith going, yeah, hard, terrible, broken life for you. Yeah, me too. 
So who gets this meal? All of us. We all get it. I mean, the prerequisite for coming to the Lord's Supper is to need nourishment from Jesus. Like it's not a reward for good behavior. It's nourishment for those who are dying. That's Jesus's point here. He feeds us spiritually. And when we take the supper, we're reminded that one day we will have this meal with him, with him face to face. The Lord's Supper will one day be fulfilled as the wedding supper of the Lamb. But month after month, couple of weeks after couple of weeks, when we take this meal, we are reminded that the people who received this meal were very quickly right before made painfully aware of their expertise at failing Jesus. And it's not to condemn us. It's to give us hope. It's to remind us that yes, we are broken. We are sinners. We are falling short of the glory of God. And yet Jesus stoops down to meet us right where we are and give us himself. So from there, we go to our final stop for today, the Mount of Olives. Let's read starting in verse 30. (laughs) When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. They still don't get it. So we move to the last part of our text this morning, and that's the prophecy of Jesus, denial. At some point, Judas leaves. Text doesn't tell us, but in between receiving the meal and going to the Mount of Olives, Jesus and his disciples are left to sing a hymn. And can you, can you imagine the scene after all that's taken place, after all the things that Jesus has said, he goes, all right, guys, let's sing together. <laughs> I gotta be looking for the saddest psalm to sing. Just left as they're singing praises to the God of heaven, wondering in their back of their minds, is it me? Is it me? Then Jesus wallops them with the impending reality that actually all of you are going to fall away. Let me just, let me just clear the air here. You don't have to wonder anymore because it's all of you. All of you are going to fall Away, Like in verse 23, Jesus knows that the scriptures are true and cannot be broken. He quotes Zechariah 13. When they strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And Jesus says, look, I know the word. The word is unbroken. It can't be broken. It's true. Then it applies right here to my situation. So don't, don't miss this point. This is kind of an aside, but listen in. Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7. When they strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And he applies it to him. To him. On this night, now, I'm not God, I'm not a prophet, 
But if I were a betting man, I would tell you that when Zechariah sat down to write the prophecy in chapter 13, verse 7, he wasn't thinking, you know, the Messiah is going to be betrayed by his closest disciples, and they're going to go to the Mount of Olives, and Judas is going to come and give him a kiss, and it's going to be terrible, and all the disciples are going to fall away. He does not have that in mind. So what is Jesus doing? He's showing you and me that the whole Bible is about him. Like the whole Bible is about Jesus. Now, yes, in one sense, we all know this, right? Like we know that he's the centerpiece of the story of scripture, that, that all the Old Testament is this promise pointing forward to Jesus and the kind of the New Testament is mostly looking back at the person and work of Jesus. But I mean, the Bible is about him. We read the Bible and we look for the son of God. No matter where you are in this book, you read it and you say, where is the son? We study the inspired word and we notice the incarnate word. Sally Lloyd-Jones has this really famous children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've used it in your own family. Uh, I know that the children's ministry here uses it. But the subtitle of that book is what's so profound. She has all of these collections of stories from the Bible, but the subtitle is, Every Story Whispers His Name. And she's right. Christ is the key to the scriptures. So, back to, our, back to the main path. The, the Bible is all about Jesus. Back to the Mount of Olives. The disciples will fall away. They will fall. Peter, as almost as if on cue, right, is going like, these, these clowns are going to fall away, but me? No way. Not me. And you got to think the other disciples are like, Peter, he called you Satan before. Like, you may want to like tone it down, you know? I mean, he's this kind of arrogance and pride in Peter is welling up because of his current feeling of devotion to Jesus. Right? So, so here's, here's the example. When we're in Bible study, like when we're in equipping groups, or when we're in our table groups discussing what's going on in our life, you know, it's super easy to be like, I love Jesus. Everything's great. I will follow him no matter what. So a friend of mine said, he posted on Twitter, he was like, my son, after hearing this testimony from a missionary in China, and it was like this quote of like, I will be willing to die for Jesus, and I will give my whole life for the sake of his church, and, and I'm so encouraged and, and challenged by this missionary. This is amazing. It's like, also my son, three hours ago, don't make me get out of bed. I don't want to go to church. <laughs> like, same kid, you know? So we can look at Peter and kind of chuckle. But we also probably get a little uncomfortable because we're a lot more like him than we may be willing to admit. When things are good, when Jesus feels close, when we're surrounded by our brothers, it's easy to say that we're going to be faithful. But that's not when you're being tested. So Jesus devastates him. Actually, Peter, of all the disciples, you're going to deny me three times before this night is done. 
And yet they still didn't believe him. I mean, look at verse, look at verse 36. Even if I must die with you, I'll not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This last passage is a hard pill to swallow. How can the people closest to Jesus let him down when they needed him most? So we land the plane where we find ourselves because we sin and fall short of the glory of God. Even though we claim to be followers of Jesus, we claim that Jesus is our Lord. Even as believers, we fall away often. We deny the Lord with our words, with our thoughts, with our actions. But there is hope for us, just as there was hope for the disciples. So look again at verse 31. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Look at verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now that seems like a throwaway line. But remember what we said earlier. There's no accidents in this book. Nothing unimportant in this book. The resurrection of Jesus is what secures the disciples to know that Jesus, even though they've fallen away, Jesus will not fall away from them. When I'm raised up, Jesus says, after you've denied me, after you fall away, when I'm raised up, meet me in Galilee. The invitation is still open. Even after they fall short, he will be with them again. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. And soon as that's the gospel. And the gospel is the only thing we bring to that table is our failure. The only thing we bring to that table is our sin. And Jesus, and Jesus is faithful enough for the both of us. And so when we find ourselves falling away, falling short, my prayer is that you would, you would practice this rhythm in your life that we see in the lives of the disciples that transform them. And that is when they, away, when they fell away, they went to Jesus. When they fell short, they went to Jesus. When they denied him, they went to Jesus. So when we find ourselves falling short, the answer is not, well, I've already gone this far. I might as well just do this. It's not what Christians do. Christians remember that when we are faithless, he is faithful and that his offer to come meet him is always open. So that in our brokenness, in our failure, in our falling away by the power of his spirit, he might say, hey, take and eat. Drink this, all of you. Find nourishment in, in me. Find nourishment in my body. You're looking at it. Find hope in my body. Find healing in my body. Made up of members who've been covered by his blood. The thing about Jesus the thing about following him 
that for you, for, for, for those of us who are walking in sin, unrepentant, is unbelievably annoying. But for those of us who are crawling and pleading and begging to know more of him, is that he will not leave you alone. So let me pray for you. We'll spend some time discussing this in our groups.